we're going to be today. Um, so let me set up Philemon for you guys. Um, I, I love this book, this, this letter. It's, this letter has revolutionary potential. I mean, it literally can change the world if it was lived out, and I'm not exaggerating that. And you can figure out, you can decide for yourself if that's true after this message. Um, I love how uh, there's a guy named N.T. Wright who is a, a known author, a Christian author. He wrote a book a few years ago on, on Paul, and he began his work on Paul with Philemon. And people said, why did you do that? Why didn't you begin a, a, a work on Paul with like Romans or Ephesians, like one of these power-packed letters? And N.T. Wright said, it's in Philemon that Paul's theology hits the ground. This is where it's actually lived out in a very practical way. Um, and so let me give you all a little bit of the backdrop here. Uh, Philemon is uh, the house church um, host, maybe even the house church leader of the church that met in Colossae. So the Colossians, uh, the letter to Colossians is written to the church that actually meets in this guy's house. And he, um, like every wealthy um, person within Greco-Roman society, owned slaves, Everyone did. That's just, that was, with very few exceptions, everyone who was wealthy in society owned slaves. And one of this guy's slaves was a guy named Onesimus. And we can kind of reconstruct a little bit of the narrative of what may have happened. It seems like Onesimus has robbed Philemon and run away. Either he took some money or he took something of value, and he's run away from Philemon, and he probably goes to Rome where he's going to try to just disappear in the big city, basically. And somehow in God's providence, he finds the Apostle Paul, who's under house arrest in Rome. And not shocking, Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. And so Paul has been, uh, and so then Onesimus has fallen in love with Paul. Paul has just fallen in love with this guy, probably this young man named Onesimus who we find this really affectionate language that Paul feels for him. He says, he's my child. He says, I'm sending back him to you, my very heart I'm sending back to you. And so Paul's just fallen in love with this guy, but he feels like it's not right for him just to keep him, that he should send him back to uh, Philemon, to his master. And so in a, t in a day and age when runaway slaves were sometimes, were many times crucified by their masters, um, I think we would hope that Philemon wouldn't crucify Onesimus. He would be a little nicer than that. But who knows how Philemon might respond with, when his runaway slave who robbed him comes back. And so what happens, what's happening here is the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to Philemon to uh, appeal on behalf of his son in the faith, Onesimus. All right, so this letter is so little that I think it's actually small enough for us to actually read the whole book in church. So we're going to read the whole letter to Philemon. It's Paul's uh, shortest letter. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy, joy and comfort from you, my brother, 
because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is right, what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to have kept him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it to say nothing of you owing even your own self to me. Apparently, Paul led Philemon to the Lord too. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart, who is Onesimus, in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you to provide some accountability that will do the right thing. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, and my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So here we go, Philemon. Um, The fact that Philemon was preserved, copied, and sent to Christian communities all over the place uh, lends to the fact that Philemon responded kindly towards Onesimus uh, when he received him, uh, and, and that, that, he did even, that he did what Paul asked for in verse 21, that he did even more than Paul asked for in graciously receiving him back. Uh, because if, if uh, Philemon had um, ig- ignored Paul's request to receive Onesimus back as a brother, if he had marched Philemon out back and had him flogged, then it's unlikely that this letter would have made it into our New Testament. In other words, if Philemon had disobeyed Paul, um, then it's unlikely that this letter would have been copied time and time again and sent to Christian communities all over the place as this beautiful story, right? And so I think we can assume that Philemon did receive Onesimus back as a brother. But the fact is, is we don't know exactly how this happened. All we have is is this letter that Paul wrote to Philemon. Um, And even though this letter was written for Philemon, it's actually addressed to Philemon, to Aphia, who's probably Philemon's wife, to Archippus, who's probably Philemon's son, and, quote, to the church in your house, verse 2. So this was actually probably read with the whole church of Colossae gathered in Philemon's home. Again, probably to provide some accountability. So imagine this moment. Um, The Christian community in Colossae is gathered in Philemon's home. Tychicus, who's the guy that Paul has just sent back, with the letter to Colossians and the letter to Philemon, which arrived at the same time. They're actually companion letters. Um, And he's also come back with Onesimus. 
And Tychicus has probably just read the letter of Colossians to the church gathered there. Um, they probably, in this gathering, there's Jews and Greeks and, and slave and free, Onesimus and Philemon. And they've probably just heard the words of Colossians 3.10, where Paul says, guys, you put off the old self with its sinful practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And in this place where we are being, we're putting off the old man, putting on the new man, being renewed as creatures in the image of God, in that context, the social divisions that society divides us into, they can't stand there. That's why Paul follows that with these incredible words of Colossians 3.11, which I'll put up. I'm on, I'm on it now. Um, Colossians 3.11 says this, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. They probably just heard those words. And then Colossians 4, 9, which says this. And with him, that's Tychicus, um, has come Onesimus. And how does he, how does Paul describe Onesimus to the church in Colossae? Our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. He will tell you about everything that's taken place here. You think, faithful, beloved brother, one of us? Paul, are you, are you sure you've got the right Onesimus? I mean, we are talking about robbed his master and got out of town Onesimus, right? And I can just imagine at this point, all eyes are on Philemon. Like, Philemon, is this true? Because if you and Onesimus are good, then we're cool with him. Um, but is this, is this really how you feel about him? And I can just imagine Philemon coming over to Onesimus, putting his arm around him and saying, you're my brother. I love you, and you're welcome here. Everybody, let's receive him as we'd receive a visit from Paul the Apostle. Can you just imagine the joy in their hymns that day as they partook of the Lord's Supper and just after seeing this visible and public demonstration of reconciliation and as a life shaped by the gospel responds? I love that. In verses 4 and 7, uh, the Apostle Paul praises Philemon as um, this guy who is, uh, he, even from prison, Paul says, I've heard of your love and faith towards Jesus. I've heard of your, your love for all the saints. He says that I've, I've been comforted, even from prison, by this gift you have, Philemon, of refreshing the hearts of the saints. Um, he's just been so, even, even from prison, blessed by the ministry of Philemon. And I don't think that Paul's just buttering Philemon up so that he'll be nice to Onesimus. Um, I don't think Paul's being disingenuous. I think Paul really does think that Philemon's a godly man. And he is um, an, uh, a fellow worker in the ministry, as Paul calls him in verse 1. Gabriel, what's your point? My point is this. It's impossible for us to read a letter like Philemon in this day and age and someone not push back on me at this point. And maybe rightly so. Um, you guys are all about Philemon. Um, Gabe likes Philemon. Jordan likes Philemon. Paul likes Philemon. Hooray for Philemon, but are you guys forgetting something? Newsflash, guys. Philemon bought and owned human beings as slaves. The same guy who refreshes the hearts of the saints is an active participant in the dehumanizing institution of slavery. 
So how good can this guy really be? Frank Thielman writes this. Slavery was deeply woven into the economic fabric of the Roman Empire. Without it, the Romans could not have achieved political dominance of the Mediterranean region, nor would their celebrated architectural, civic, literary, and philosophical achievements have been possible. Slavery provided the wealthy classes with the leisure to develop strategies, plan buildings, debate legislation, write poetry and essays, and think about life. At the same time, slavery was unavoidably dehumanizing and oppressive. Slaves, not merely their labor, were their master's property. They had no legal rights and could be bred, raped, punished, and murdered at the whim of their masters. The institution was so brutal that it could only survive by the systemic use of fear and violence. One thing it's probably worth saying is that as Americans, when we hear slavery, we immediately go to um, the American story of slavery and the African slave trade, um, which of course was very much um, connected to racism and particularly the color of your skin. It should be said that when you read the Bible and you read about slavery in the Bible, uh, color of skin and racism isn't necessarily an issue. Um, In fact, the way the Greeks and Romans treated their slaves had everything to do with how civilized they considered that conquered people to be. So if they considered the conquered people to be very cultured and civilized, they typically would treat them better as slaves. But someone from like Britannia, like Britain or Germania, which is now Germany, who has whider skin than maybe me, would be seen as barbaric. They would be seen as barbarians, and they'd be the kind of slaves that would be tied to a slave galley and go down with the ship if it went down. So slavery didn't necessarily have to do with color of skin. It had to do with how civilized they seemed, thought you were. Um, But even so, we we come to this text, and we are like, what do we do with this guy named Philemon, who seems to be a godly man, um, as Paul's talking about him? Um, I listened to a talk by Tim Keller, who uh, a few years ago, he spoke at Google. Google had him come speak there. And Tim Keller talks about this guy named Landon Gilkey, who um, had lost his, his faith uh, as a child or as a, as a young man and went off to Harvard, got a philosophy degree at Harvard, and he kind of came to believe in the essential goodness of humanity and that our rationality was our tool for solving the world's problems and religion and Christianity weren't helpful at all. And, uh, and he went off to teach at a university in China in the 1930s. And when Japan, when World War II broke out and Japan came and, and overran that part of China, uh, he and a bunch of other foreign nationals were placed in this detention camp that the Japanese set up. And so Landon Gilkey found himself among uh, these, uh, these other foreign nationals in this camp, and it was just really brutal conditions. Like 2,000 people living in less than one city block. Um, 2,000 people sharing 20 toilets and, you know, very meager resources and, um, and food and all that kind of stuff. Just re- and so everyone just kind of kicked into survival mode, right? And, and Landon Gilkey talked about how it was there in that Japanese detention center that he came to believe in what the Bible talked about as sin. Because he saw himself just confronted with the gross selfishness of humanity. He would just, he'd come in thinking humans are basically good and all this stuff, and, but when the chips are down, 
almost nobody's nice. And what was even kind of tragic about this story is there were a lot of priests and missionaries in that detention camp, and they were no better than anyone else. They were every bit as selfish as everyone else, just out for number one, trying to survive, except for one guy named Eric Liddell, who you may know of as Eric Little from the movie Chariots of Fire, um, who was, you know, he, on principle, wouldn't run on Sabbath, and he uh, during the Olympics, but he was a committed Presbyterian missionary. And he went to China as a missionary, and he also found himself in this detention camp. And, there, and Gilkey was trying to figure out what is different about this guy, even different from the other missionaries that are completely selfish in this place. Um, because uh, Eric, Eric Liddell was, um, you know, cooking for the teenagers in the camp. He was filled with humor and a love of life, even in that dark place. He was just sacrificially loving everyone in the camp. And, um, and Gilkey didn't know what to do with them. Like, what, do, what makes this guy different? And after listening to um, Eric talk, listening to, and watching Eric's life, he, he determined that at the end of the day, Eric was someone who believed in the unconditional love and grace of God. And that he was not loved, any more or any less, based on his charity, based on his good works, based on his sacrificial love. And so that just flowed out of him as someone completely convinced that he's loved on his best and worst day. I love this. Um, He says this. In Liddell, we have a picture of what a human being could be if he was both humbled and yet profoundly affirmed and filled with the knowledge of God's love through unconditional grace. I love that. Both humbled, radically humbled, because we bring nothing to the table and Jesus gives it all. And yet, incredibly affirmed, brought into this incredible inheritance in the kingdom. That's what happens in the gospel. Because the bottom line is what, um, what Gilkey noted is that, and this is really important, y'all, religion can actually make you worse including the Christian religion. Any religion, any, any list, any religious list of do's and don'ts can actually make you a more self-centered, self-righteous person. And, and Gilkey watched that play out time and time again with the Christians and missionaries and priests in that camp. They just found religious reasons to justify their own selfishness. I found this quote by John Piper that I thought was really helpful. He says this, we have blank spots in our sanctification, just as we have blind spots in our knowledge. We've got spots that are totally blank in our sanctification. The gospel empowers us and gives us power to transform us into people that are set free to love. And I think Philemon was on this journey of being set free to love as he was allowing the gospel to make more inroads into his own heart. Um, and this is what part of, I think, what strikes me about this letter of Philemon. Because I'm, I, I read this and I'm like, okay, God, what are the completely blank spots in my sanctification? Um, what are the ways, you know, we may say Philemon was a product of his culture. Of course he was, but so am I. Um, I'm a product of my white, southern, evangelical, 
American culture, Christian subculture. Like, and I think, I really do, I think, what are the ways that Adeline and my daughter's generation are going to look back at me and say, how did dad miss that one? Like we might look at Philemon and say, how did you miss this one, dude? Owning human beings? And I think that this calls us to think through, like, God, I mean, give me, give me wisdom. Give me discernment. Where are the ways that I'm not allowing the message of God's love and grace that's unconditional to redeem my view of people to the uttermost? And this is, I think, what Paul is really pressing into Philemon. He's wanting it to come out of his own gospel-shaped life. Um, in verse 13, he says this about Onesimus. He says, I would have been glad to keep him with me, but in order, that he might, uh, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent. Why? In order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. I'd rather this flow out of you, Philemon. I don't want to just command you to do the right thing. Um, N.T. Wright talks about how Paul had this, this desire. He wanted to make his points clear to the churches that he was writing to, but one of the things that he wanted is he wanted this to become embedded in their character. And so N.T. Wright says this, Paul, again and again, worked on the principle that if you give someone a straight command, you get them to do what you want in that particular instance. But if you teach, them, teach someone to think Christianly, you will enable them to grow as a human being and figure out for themselves what God might want them to do in other situations. And this, N.T. Wright says, is similar to the expression, if you give a man a fish, you feed the man for the day. If you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime, right? This is what Paul's after. He's wanting Philemon not just to do the right thing in this one instance with Onesimus. He's wanting Philemon to be someone who's shaped by the gospel, and that he would learn to interpret that and reinterpret that in other situations. And this is what Paul's doing. He's inviting Philemon to think Christianly. I love that phrase. To respond to Onesimus in a way shaped by the grace and mercy he's received in Jesus. Because here there's neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised. Barbarian, who is basically the immigrant, and Scythian, slave, Free, but Christ is all and in all, as Paul says in Colossians 3.11. Jesus, hear me, y'all, Jesus changes the game completely. We're playing by totally different rules with Jesus because he removes the barriers by which people are divided and subdivided into society. American immigrant, churched, unchurched, rich, poor. Jesus, humanity can't be divided into these subgroups, and then assign varying degrees of value. Jews over Greeks, rich over poor, men over women. Why? Why has the, why has the playing field been leveled so much like this? Because there's one human who is infinitely more valuable than any other human. Jesus the Christ. Christ is all, Paul says. Jesus is supremely valuable. That's Paul's point. His worth and his glory surpasses everyone. But not only that, Paul says, he's pleased to dwell in anyone who receives him by faith. 
That's ultimately what Colossians 3.11 is saying, that Jesus is pleased to dwell in the believing slave. He's pleased to dwell in the believing barbarian, the immigrant, the child from the ghetto, and the child from Greystone. And if Jesus, who is worth more and more glorious than any human being in history, is pleased to dwell in any person, regardless of their socioeconomic status, their national status, their religious background, their gender or race, then any act of discrimination, whether subtle or explicit, should be despised. Racism dies here. Religious pride dies here. Elitism of every kind dies here. It's said that uh, one of the greatest tragedies of Christian history occurred in 1271 when uh, Nicello and Matteo Polo, the father and uncle of Marco Polo, visited Kublai Khan, who at the time was the ruler of the world. He ruled all of China, all of India, and all of the East. And Kublai Khan was impressed by the story of Christianity, as it was told to him by these two guys. And so he said, I want you to do this. I want you to go back and speak to your high priest and send me a hundred men skilled in your religion, and I will receive baptism. And all of my nobles and great men will receive baptism. And all of their subjects will be baptized. And it will be more Christians in these parts than in all of your lands. Nicello and Matteo went back and spoke to the highest religious authorities, and the Pope responded, those barbarians don't deserve the gospel. Nothing was done for 30 years, and then two or three missionaries were sent. Too few, too late. As a result, hordes of Buddhist monks were pleased to go to the Mongols, and they converted the largest empire in human history to Buddhism. Christ is everything, Paul says. He's all. He's worth more, and he's pleased to dwell in you in me, in her, in him, in that people group, on that side of town. And the gospel takes a stake and it just drives it straight into the heart of prejudice in whatever form it takes. It does this. It does this in you. It does this in you if, hear me y'all, it does this in you if you allow the love and grace of Jesus to shape your view of the world. Invite the Holy Spirit to strike your heart again with your desperate and daily need for a Savior. That will humble you. Your desperate and daily need for Jesus. Celebrate the fact that the most glorious human being in history is in you by faith. Do that, and you'll find it harder to look down on people. You'll find it harder to use people. Do that, and you'll find it harder to exploit people or become disinterested in their well-being because not even Jesus turned his nose down on you. He's never exploited you a single day of your life. Guys, I got really good news for you. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. It's not as though God's like, okay, I've got to connect these two people. So what I really need is somebody with a 
networking skill set to like help get these two people together um, and connect these ministry partners. God, God doesn't need you. He's not waiting for you to offer your skill set. Now, yes, in God's remarkable humility, he invites us to partner with him in his work. But we do so like a four-year-old helping her father build a fence, handing him the hammer. You're not even worth exploiting. God just welcomes you in. He loves you. He's more than any being in the universe concerned with your well-being. He's for you. This is your portion as sons and daughters of the living God. So I ask you, has the seed, has the good news of the kingdom found good soil in you? Because as it does, it bears fruit. 30, 60, 100 fold, Jesus said. And as we experience this grace that is ours, it begins to change the way we see people. And I think this is ultimately what Paul is pressing into Philemon in this letter. In verse 15, he says this. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Um, I think too often as Christians, we can be really groupish in our thinking. We love to take care of our own. And typically that means our little niche of the Christian movement. Um, But Paul says there are actually, uh, Philemon, there's actually two ways that Onesimus is family to you. First, he's your brother in the flesh. Meaning together, you're a part of the human family. People made in the image of God. You're united by brotherly bonds through your common humanity. And I think that as Christians, a lot of times we need to be reminded of our, both our connection to and our debt to love the human family, not just the family of God, not just the people of God. But yes, Paul says, he's your brother in the Lord too, meaning he's now your brother forever, Philemon. And by the way, this little age is going to end, and all these divisions that you guys are divided into aren't going to stand There certainly aren't going to be any institutions like slavery anymore. And I think it's at this point that Paul is is suggesting and hinting, maybe even more than hinting, that Philemon just go ahead and grant Onesimus his freedom. And I think we hear this in Paul's perhaps. Perhaps, Paul says, he was separated from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant. More than a bondservant, Philemon, as a beloved brother. I think Paul's basically saying, you know what, Philemon, what if you just went ahead and granted him his freedom? No longer a bondservant anymore, just a brother now, a brother forever. Um, But again, uh, Paul's not wanting Philemon to do anything by compulsion. He's wanting this reaction to come out of a life shaped by the gospel. That's what he's after in Philemon. I'm going to go and invite uh, the worship team up. And if you guys can keep your attention on me as they're coming up here. Uh, Paul was a guy whose life was shaped by the gospel. And Paul, uh, Jesus took the wages of Paul's sin, which was death, and Jesus put that on his account. And so in verses 18 and 19, what does Paul say? He says, if Onesimus has wronged you at all, 
or if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And then in verse 17, he says, receive him as you would receive me. And I think this becomes the call for reconciliation, uh, for love, for mercy in your spheres of influence because of that great reconciliation that occurs every time a sinner's wrong, a sinner's debt is placed on Christ's account. And Jesus says to the Father, Father, receive her as you'd receive me. Receive him as you'd receive me. You know, at this time, I said, you know, runaway slaves were often crucified by their masters. Um, but there was another who was crucified on Philemon's behalf. There wasn't going to be a cross waiting for Onesimus. Just mercy and welcome and a new family. I love that. Brought into family. Um, you know, the, the reality is this, y'all, is that a religious list of do's and don'ts, apart from grace, um, just on its own, a religious list of do's and don'ts will make you a more self-centered person, a more self-righteous person, because you then get thrown on yourself and how you're doing, right, and how, you're, how many boxes you're checking. Um, but Eric Liddell saw something. The Apostle Paul saw something. And I think Philemon's beginning to see something. And it's this, brothers and sisters, you've been loved with an undying love that you don't deserve. It's what Scott said last week. The gospel empowers our good works. Just in the last few minutes here, um, we're going to go back into worship, and I want to invite ministry teams up. Um, and just, if you would like to receive prayer for anything, um, or even specifically just, God, I want the gospel to penetrate my heart at a deeper level and shape the way I live. Um, we'd love to pray for you. together as we worship.
Many of you probably came with some need this morning. This is just an opportunity to have someone pray for you. Maybe in response to the word that Gabe has given you, you sense God leading you and directing you and stirring your heart. So we sing this song. This is time just to receive prayer. We just want to invite you. There's no forcing, but just come and receive prayer. It's an opportunity for you to be ministered to. Just come. moment 